Good morning. Welcome to all of you in the room today, and welcome to all of you who are watching online. We're so excited that you've chosen to join us this weekend for worship. For those of you that are home and watching online, I want to remind you to go ahead and prepare for communion. Later on in the service, we're going to take communion, so you can go ahead and get those elements and get those ready. But we are in the last week of a series entitled Heroes of the Bible, and it has been great to look at these different characters and learn from their lives. And today we're going to be talking about a character that maybe many of you have never heard of before. The character's name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek, that's right, that's what I said. Out of curiosity, how many of you have never heard of this guy in the Bible, Melchizedek? Raise your hand. A lot of hands in the room. Yeah, how many of you have heard the name of Melchizedek, but you really don't know much about him? There's a few. And then how many of you, you feel like you know this story pretty well? Anybody? Why don't you come up and speak for me? Because you can probably do it better. Come on. Just kidding. No, we're going to talk about this guy, Melchizedek. I'll be honest with you. I have never preached a message on Melchizedek before, and I've never, that I can recall, remember hearing anyone preach a message on Melchizedek. And why is that? It's because he's actually a pretty vague character in the Bible. I don't normally like to talk about someone who's only mentioned just a few times, but the reason we're going to talk about this character is because I believe that there's some significance to his life that God wants us to know about. And as we dive into this idea of Melchizedek, first of all, I want you to understand a concept of something called an Easter egg. How many of you know what Easter eggs are? Yeah, we all know what Easter eggs are. At Easter time, we paint up these eggs, we go hide them somewhere, and usually the kids go and look for them everywhere. That's what Easter eggs are. But in pop culture today, and in our modern culture, Easter egg means something different. How many of you feel like you understand the more modern pop culture version of Easter eggs? A lot of young people in the room. Okay, let me see if I can help you understand what this Easter egg thing is. So, Back in my childhood, I was born in 1970, there was the beginning of video games, and there was this video game system called Atari. Shout out for Atari, a few of you. Unbelievable. What an amazing, like Pong, what a game, right? Like the graphics, unbelievable. You moved a little bar and hit a little ball. It was like, whoa. But for me, that was a big deal. So back in the late 70s, in 1979, they were coming out with this Atari game called Adventure. And one of the developers of that put a hidden message into the game because they were not allowed to be given credit as creators of these games. And so what he did was, his name was Warren Robinette. He just put simply this phrase, created by Warren Robinette in the game Adventure. This is what it looked like. Spectacular graphics, right? Unbelievable. He put this little hidden message in one part of this world called adventure. And your character was that little purplish pink dot. That was you. And when you came into this room, it was the only place you would see this message. And nobody at Atari knew that he put it in there. In fact, it went about six months to a year. And there was a child who was playing the game who stumbled into this area of the game, saw this message, told their parents. The parents ended up telling Atari, what is this all about? They had no idea it was in there. And because production had been done on all of the games, they just left it in there. And to this day, this is the beginning of what people call Easter eggs. Easter egg is kind of this seemingly insignificant, trivial maybe hidden thing, but yet it has some type of a meaning. And shortly after this, the idea of Easter eggs really started to catch on in pop culture. It became in a lot of video games and in a lot of movies. Let me give you a couple more examples. You remember some famous filmmakers named George Lucas and Steven Spielberg? 
Remember those guys? So shortly after this, about two to three years later, they started doing this in some of their films. Look at this first one. This first film is uh, Indiana Jones from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And there you can see Indy up at the top as he's pulling off the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. On the side of it, there's a inscription. And until you blow up really close, you see that it's R2-D2 and C-3PO. Probably none of you never knew that was in there unless you know about these Easter eggs. So he had hidden this message kind of showing that he had uh, connected something to Star Wars. And if you weren't looking for it, you would never know it was there. Just kind of a hidden thing, kind of more of an inside joke between them. Look at the next one. This is from the movie E.T., very popular movie, like around 1982. And this is from the picture of E.T. looking out of his Halloween costume. And just really quickly, a character passed by, and it was a tribute to Yoda. And so he noticed Yoda. And in the movie, you get the sense that E.T. kind of knows Yoda. Like, hey, we're buddies. We're pals. We go way back. We used to live in an alternate world together. And everybody thought it was kind of funny. Well, then the loop closes up in 1999 in Star Wars Phantom Menace. There's just this random scene of all these little spaceships in the Empire where kind of like the Galactic Senate is. And in one of them is a bunch of E.T. characters as if saying, yes, those guys really did know each other from back then. <laughs> Pretty crazy. So these are little hidden, they call them Easter eggs that are in movies and video games. Raise your hand if you know these now. These are making sense to you. Some of you out there, okay? So here's what I want you to do. Everybody who's under the age of 50, I want you to take a few moments and share with the older people like me in the room because I'm in my 50s now, my upper, middle 50s, share with the people in the room, what are some of your favorite Easter eggs from movies? And if you're older and you know of some, go ahead and take a moment, take about 30 seconds, share with the people around you, favorite Easter eggs from movies. Go for it. Well, great job. It's obvious to me that the second service is way more culturally relevant than the first service. First service, it was like five seconds. They're like, we really don't know what you're talking about, Paul. So you guys are hip and young at heart. Great job. Um, some of the favorite ones that I remember, I love looking for these things in movies. It's pretty cool. And in the early days of the Marvel movies, when they all came out, there was always a cameo appearance by a guy named Stan Lee. Stan Lee was the guy who created a lot of these cartoons and comics way back when. And so he himself would put himself into the movie for just a little moment until he recently passed away. And so just little stuff like that. So an Easter egg, again, so we're clear on it, is something that's kind of embedded in the story. It may be trivial. It may be unimportant. It may point to something else. But we kind of miss it or don't notice it unless we're actually looking for it. And what I want to propose to you that this guy Melchizedek is maybe the very first example of an Easter egg in the Bible. Maybe an example of something that we kind of just miss, we gloss over, or we read past his name in only a couple of verses. We don't think much about it, but yet it's actually someone who is pointing to someone else who is much more important. So let's dive into looking at this guy Melchizedek. 
The first time we see him is in Genesis chapter 14. But to give you kind of a context of the story, I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 13. And can you believe this? Yes, we're all the way back in the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 13. So there's this story of Abraham and his nephew Lot. And they have risen in power in the area of Canaan. And their families have grown, their herds have grown, their livestock, all their possessions. They've got to the point where they feel like they're just too big to live together. And so they make a decision that they're going to split up. One's going to go one way, one's going to go another way and continue to kind of live off of the land. Abraham lets Lot make a decision first. Lot picks this area over to where was kind of known as Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham goes off to a place called Hebron. They split up. That's how chapter 13 ends. Now, chapter 14 begins by saying that a war breaks out in the area that they've chosen to live, the area of Canaan. And there's a group of four kings that go against a group of five kings, and they go to battle. And in the midst of this battle, the one group beats the other group, and the group that loses is the area where Lot was living, in the area of Sodom. They lose the battle, and Lot and his family and all of his possessions are swept up as plunder or spoils of war in this battle. Well, Abraham hears about this. He gets word that his nephew has been taken captive, and he decides he wants to do something about it. He's going to try to go rescue his nephew. And so it says he musters up all of his family. And I love how the Bible is so specific here. It says that it's 318 men. Isn't that crazy? Seems like such a random number, but 318 guys, which doesn't seem like a big army to us, they go off to try to rescue Lot and his family and take over those kings that had won. And that's what happens. Abraham and his 318 men, they defeat these other armies. And at the end of the battle, as they're all coming back together to kind of celebrate what has happened, this is where Melchizedek comes into the story. I'm reading in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18, 19, and 20. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's really it. Those three verses tell the story of Melchizedek. He's referenced one other time, which I'm going to show you in a moment in the book of Psalms. But it seems like, why are we talking about a guy that only has three lines of scripture? What's the big deal? Well, if you notice a couple of the underlined or highlighted things there, it says that he's the king of Salem. So it's a big deal that he's a king. But where is the town of Salem? Does Salem sound familiar to any other city or town in the Old Testament? It's probably the the derivative of the word Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And so we're led to believe here that this king was from the town of Jerusalem. Who else was a king that lived in Jerusalem? Well, you can think about that for a minute. It also says that he brought out bread and wine. Why bread and wine? What's significance about that? Isn't it kind of ironic that here in a little bit at the end of our service, we're going to partake in something called communion or the Lord's Supper. And what are the two elements of that? Bread and wine. Interesting. Is that just by chance that these are the elements that he brings out? And then it says he was a priest of God Most High. He was a priest. What does that have to do? How is that significant? We're going to look at that in a minute. And then it closes by saying, then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. A tenth of everything. We kind of call that a tithe in our culture today, like 10% of something. This is the very first time in the Bible that it mentions this idea of a tenth 
or tithing. And in our service, we also gave you an opportunity to give back to God. Isn't it ironic that this is almost kind of like one of our modern church services? There's communion, there's offering, there's paying respects to a king and to a high priest. Kind of interesting. What are we trying to to get at, God? What are you wanting us to understand about this guy, Melchizedek? Let's look at the only other place in the Old Testament where he's referenced. In the book of Psalm, chapter 110, verse 4, this is written by David. David, King David, King of the Jews, uh, tells us that he's writing this by signing his name to it. And he simply says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So David acknowledges that this guy Melchizedek was real. He gives him credit, and he kind of is alluding to someone else that is maybe going to be in the same priestly line, that's going to live in the same way in, in the order of Melchizedek, that there's going to be something we need to learn about this. And really, that is it. That's all that's mentioned in all the Old Testament about this guy Melchizedek. That's why, to me, it kind of seems like an Easter egg. It's not all over the place. It's not written in tons of different locations and books and chapters and verses. Instead, it's just these little places. Well, what about the New Testament? Well, ironically, it's only mentioned in one New Testament book as well. It's written in the book of Hebrews, and the name Melchizedek is found in chapters 5, 6, and 7. The book of Hebrews, we don't exactly know who wrote it. Some people believe it was the Apostle Paul, but in all of Paul's other letters, he signs his name to it, and the writer of Hebrews never signs his name, never attributes who it is who wrote it. We're not going to get caught up in who actually wrote it. We're going to look at what the author of Hebrews had to say. And so why is it called Hebrews? Because the person who wrote this was writing specifically to a group of Jewish people, Israelite people, and he was wanting them to understand A few things, but one basic premise. And this basic premise is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is who you've been waiting for. He is your king of kings. He is your high priest. That's what the writer is trying to tie together. And that's where Melchizedek comes into the story in Hebrews. I'm going to start reading in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Every high priest is selected from among the people, and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So there was only one person on the face of the earth at any given time who was the high priest. And it was the high priest's role to do something that no one else would do. And that was be a conduit between the people and God. For the Israelites, it was basically someone who would represent their entire tribe, their entire nation, their people, And so the high priest had access to God and would pray to God, would offer sacrifices to God. Nobody else could come into contact or relationship or communion with God. It was only the high priest who got to do that. So it was a very special, a very significant role. Verse 2, the high priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. You see, the the high priest wasn't without sin. He was just like everyone else. He just performed a role that no one else got to perform. Verse four, and no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to take 
this character from the very beginning of the Bible, written probably 3,400 years ago, and connect Jesus all the way back to that character. And so there's some kind of commonality here. There's some kind of link. There's some kind of relationship that we need to understand about this guy, Melchizedek, and then how Jesus is kind of like the answer to Melchizedek, the, the hope that we can have. Continue reading verse seven. During the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so here's what the writer is saying. He's making it crystal clear that this Jesus Christ is special, unique, unlike any other person, just like the high priest was. And just like this guy Melchizedek was, was unique, was different, Jesus is the same way. And Jesus is our source, he says, of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So pretty cool story to see this link between Jesus and Melchizedek. I'm not going to have you read uh, chapter 6 where it talks a little bit about Melchizedek, but instead we're going to jump now into chapter 7. And we're going to read almost all of this chapter to just try to get a clear understanding of this connection. But as I'm reading chapter 7 to you or as you read it off of the screen, I want your mind to be thinking about as you hear these sayings and phrases and ideas about Melchizedek, I want you to see what is it in here that you think of that reminds you of Jesus, of your understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. Let's see if they fit together. Chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Isn't that interesting that we often call Jesus the prince of peace? And we know that Jesus provides us the opportunity to be righteous in God's eyes, for we are not on our own. And so how interesting that Melchizedek's name means righteousness, and the king of Salem means king of peace. Jesus fulfilled both of those things. Verse 3, this is describing Melchizedek. It says, he was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. And I love this phrase, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. I love the connection he's making that Melchizedek, we don't know where he came from. We don't have any other story. We don't know his ancestors. We don't know his descendants. He seems to be kind of this one-off character. And it sounds like that's a lot like Jesus. Very similar. Verse four, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people. That is from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, talking about Melchizedek, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So I want to pause for a moment. What the writer here is trying to talk about, for the Jews, it would have been very significant that the high priest had to be from the tribe of Levi. Aaron who later was the high priest during the time of Moses, was a direct descendant from Levi. And so they expected that all high priests would all come from that line, from that tribe, from that group of descendants. Yet we know, as we find out here in a minute, Jesus was not. And so he's trying to say, how can Jesus be our high priest if he wasn't from that 
priestly line. Continuing on in verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So he's making a point here that we know that Jesus came from the kingly line, from the line of King David through the tribe of Judah. But he's saying that doesn't exclude Jesus from being able to be our high priest because Melchizedek was also considered a priest of God, yet he was not from the tribe of Levi. So that's the the connection he's trying to make there. Verse 15, and what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, meaning it's not about his tribe or where he came from, but I love this next phrase, catch this but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. What a great way to describe Jesus, right? He lived an indestructible life. He came back from the dead. He conquered death for us. And he says, for it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. This would have been difficult words for the Israelites and the Jewish people to hear because they believed that their covenant with God, what we call the old covenant, was everything. It was the sacrificial system. It was the law. It was keeping all the rules, all the obedience. They believed that's how they were connected to God. That's how they had fellowship and relationship with him was through the obedience to these things. And yet the writer of Hebrews is saying, but wait a minute, maybe that's not what it's all about. Maybe it's about a relationship and Jesus can provide you with that relationship. Jesus now is your access to God, not based on what you've done and how you've obeyed, but based on his life, the power of an indestructible life. Continuing on in verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And that's what we believe about Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's interceding on our behalf to God. He's taking our requests, our prayers, our thoughts, our desires, and he's making them known to God so that we can have access to God anywhere and at any time. Verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Clearly the writer of Hebrews here is referencing the cross, what Jesus Christ paid for all of us in that moment in time in history. Verse 28, For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. So how amazing is this? 
that God, as he's writing the, the infinite story of all time and all eternity, from the very beginning, left us a clue, a hint, an Easter egg, if you will, about his coming son, Jesus Christ, through the story of this guy, Melchizedek. Like, I'll be honest with you, for a lot of the younger years of my life, I really didn't enjoy reading the Old Testament. I found it to kind of be boring, just a lot of lists or wars or battles or things that didn't either apply to me now or make sense to me. And so I didn't spend much time reading the Old Testament. But thankfully, years ago, when I started to uncover stories like Melchizedek and others, it reminded me that, wait a minute, there is a story that connects these two covenants, this Old Testament and New Testament. And now it's been very fun and actually exciting for me when I read the Old Testament to look for these Easter eggs, these stories, these illusions, these foreshadowings of a coming Messiah. And so what I want to do is I want to encourage you this next week to maybe even try that. If you've not found the Old Testament, Old Testament to be something that you enjoy reading, maybe now read it with this new perspective of where can I find the story of Jesus embedded in the Old Testament. And in fact, Melchizedek isn't the only Easter egg about Jesus. Maybe it's one of the first, but there's many, many others that are there. And if you're looking for a place in the Old Testament to start reading, I would encourage you to maybe think about the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a guy who lived about 600 years before Jesus. And he spoke on behalf of what God asked him to share with the Israelite people. And through his, his book called Isaiah, there are so many different, what I would call Easter eggs or allusions to Jesus. Let me just share a couple of them with you quickly. In Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, this is going to be a pretty familiar verse that many of you have heard before. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. You often read that at Christmas time. Well, in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, Matthew lets us know that this was the fulfillment of this Easter egg, if you would, about a coming Messiah and that Jesus was that person. Matthew 1.20 says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, we know it's Isaiah, which said the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So an example of Matthew saying that that which we read in the Old Testament, that maybe you thought as Jews or Israelites didn't have application or meaning or purpose, we're telling you that that was written 600 years ahead of time so that you would know that when Jesus comes, that he is what was written about. I want you to think about for yourself, what are some other Easter eggs that you can think of in the New Testament? Some stories, some people, some lines of scripture that tie back to something from the Old Testament. While you're thinking about that, let me read one more, and then I'm going to ask you to maybe share with some people sitting next to you what comes to your mind. In Isaiah chapter 9, this is another powerful passage in all of chapter 9. There's so many different references to Jesus. I'm not going to read it all, just a few of the verses. The first two verses, nevertheless, there will no more be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. 
And for most of my early years, when I would read past that verse, I had no idea that it was connecting anything to Jesus. It just looked like a, a land of uh, sentences with places and people groups and bodies of water, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But if you keep reading a little bit further, it starts to become obvious who is being referenced here. In verses 6 and 7, these will be very memorable verses of Scripture to you. This is from the exact same chapter. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government, and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And again, we can see in Matthew that Matthew ties these together. Quickly, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And then he just quotes what I just read to you. So Matthew ties these together and says, these are direct attributes to Jesus. These are Easter eggs, if you will. Hints, stories, words, people that are reminding us of Jesus. For just a moment, take about 20 or 30 seconds, and if you have any that come to your mind, share with the people sitting next to you, what's another Easter egg about Jesus that you've either come to know or you think might be something that we can talk about from the Old Testament to the New? Go ahead and do that real quick. Thank you for sharing with one another. Like I said, there are so many of these, quote, Easter eggs from the book of Isaiah. I'd really encourage you to read the, the book of Isaiah. It is a long book, but there's so many interesting things in there. I'm going to close by reading one fa final passage from Isaiah and tying it together with a New Testament passage. But while we're doing this, we're also going to engage in a time of communion. And communion is a time that we set aside for us to reconnect with God, to commune with God, to have access to him, because on our own, we shouldn't be able to have access to God in this type of a way. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus became our king and our high priest so that now we can have unlimited access to God anywhere and at any time. And so in just a moment, we're going to take communion. But before we do, here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to one more passage of scripture. This is found in the book of Acts. And instead of reading the Easter egg first, we're going to read the Easter egg last. And I'm going to look at the book of Acts chapter 8, where a character named Philip actually used the passage of scripture in Isaiah that we're going to read in just a moment to share the good news of Jesus with someone who, had no, who knew nothing about Jesus. The story unfolds this way. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. 
The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. The man said, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the very passage of scripture from Isaiah that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch then asked Philip, please tell me, who is this prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. We're going to close our service by allowing you to read that very same passage of scripture. This amazing Easter egg that God left for us in Isaiah chapter 53. And so during our time of communion, instead of just getting up right as I'm done praying, I want to encourage you to stay in your seats and just quietly contemplate who Jesus is for you. And while you're doing that, I want you to read this passage of scripture, Isaiah 53. It's going to be on the screens and we're going to scroll through that passage. When it's done at that point, feel free to come up and take the elements and then quickly take the elements back to your seat and go ahead and partake of those elements in your seat. But again, this is your opportunity to connect with God. He's provided you with a high priest, Jesus, who allows you to have unlimited access to God. So don't squander this opportunity. Don't take it lightly. Don't pass over it. Instead, use this as a way to reconnect with your heavenly father in a way that's meaningful and powerful for you personally. So would you please join me in prayer? And then after that, read the scripture silently, and then you can take communion back to your seat. Thank you. Dear God, I thank you so much for the story of Melchizedek, this seemingly unimportant, insignificant character from the very beginning of the Bible. But I thank you so much for the writer of Hebrews unpacking this for us, letting us know that Melchizedek is actually a symbol, a sign, a forerunner to Jesus Christ. And we know who Jesus is. We know what he did for us. And it's so amazing to see that you've been thinking about this from literally the beginning, that you've been weaving this story together so that we wouldn't miss it. You've been placing it in the Old Testament, hoping that we would see it, that we would catch it, that we would understand so that when Jesus came, it would make sense to us. And God, we admit today for us, it does make sense. We're so thankful for Jesus. We want to honor him today as our king and our high priest. We're so thankful, God, that we get to come to you and share with you what's going on in our life because of what Jesus did for us. And so we close by honoring Jesus and thanking him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.